I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am so thrilled to be joined today by Maggie Shipstead um, to talk about her just excellent epic novel, Great Circle. So let me tell you about her. Maggie Shipstead is the New York Times bestselling author of the novels Astonish Me and Seating Arrangements and the winner of the Dylan Thomas Prize and the LA Times Book Prize for First Fiction. She's a graduate of Iowa Writers Workshop, a former Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford and the recipient of a fellowship from the NEA. Welcome. Thank you, it's so nice to be here. Maggie, you've written the kind of book that I feel like so many people want to read like and that they're they're it's like one of the main things that people seek out just like a big fat novel that you can get lost in um tell me about the escapism of the book and the escapism in the book (laughs) so yeah i love a big fat novel um and i wasn't necessarily planning to write one Um, I had written both my other books in under a year and assumed that that was just the kind of person I was. I would just magically write all my books um, in under a year. That turned out not to be the case. The first draft took me three years and three months. I started writing it in fall of 2014 and I sold it two years and eight months ago, whatever year that was, 2018, I guess, maybe. Yeah. And, uh, Um, So, of course, we couldn't have seen the pandemic coming. And I think in some ways that's really changed the context of it as it's been published kind of this moment when people are getting vaccinated and things are the light at the end of the tunnel is a little bit brighter. And I think everyone's really hungry for, you know, freedom and a sense of movement. And those are the two things that really drive my main character, Marion Graves. She sort of has devoted her life to seeking and preserving freedom, which um, involves a lot of sacrifice um, so yeah, it's was, it was a bit happenstance that the escapism is sort of as timed to this moment as it hopefully is. But as I was reading the novel, I, I kind of felt like, why 
doesn't everyone want to go into aviation today? Like, <laughs> the There's the metaphorical meaning of flying, but there is also the very literal escape hatch that, that flying provides. Yeah, um, I really came to appreciate flight a lot more in the writing of this. I've never been like a big airplane person. I'm not a super nervous flyer, but I'm someone where when there's turbulence, I like grab the armrest really hard, <laughs> that kind of flyer. Sure. Um, my brother is just leaving the Air Force after 20 years, and he used to fly the C-130, the big four propeller cargo plane. And he was one of those children who's just obsessed with airplanes, knew he wanted to be a pilot. And to me, that seems like a commonality amongst most of the pilots I read about or have met. They just know there's just something about it. Um, and so for my character, Marion, I think she's more as a child, she's really free range child. It sort of doesn't occur to her. There are any limitations on her. She knows she wants to see the larger world. And so when she first encounters airplanes um, in the form of biplanes being flown by sort of traveling barnstormers in 1927, it's just like, oh, this is my vehicle to the kind of life I want, um, which of course is a more complex proposition than she can imagine at the beginning. But that's sort of, it's her kind of thunderbolt or epiphany moment, I guess. If there's ever been a year to make the moms in your life feel loved and appreciated on Mother's Day, it's this one. I've missed seeing and hugging my mom regularly this year, and I know she feels the same. That's why I'm honoring my mom with a heartfelt, sentimental gift the whole family can cherish together forever. StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and any mother figure in your life share stories through thought-provoking questions about their memories and personal thoughts. It's a fun new way to engage with them, especially if you can't be together in person. Every week, StoryWorth emails your mom a different story prompt, questions you might never have thought to ask, like, what is some of the best advice your mother ever gave you? And if you could choose any talents to have, what would they be? StoryWorth has helped numerous families learn about each other in profound special ways and their testimonials will practically move you to tears. There's no shortage of surprises when reading the weekly stories and they make your family feel closer even if you're not together. After one year, StoryWorth will compile all your mom's stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that's shipped for free. Give your mom the most meaningful gift with StoryWorth. Get started right away with no shipping required by going to storyworth.com slash Maris. You'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash Maris for $10 off. There's no way to literally get stuck <laughs> in, in the circumstances you're in when you can just fly away. Well, theoretically, I mean, she learns that, you know, you need money for flying lessons sure. and airplanes don't grow on trees and they need fuel and you can't land everywhere. And so some of her life is just this process of like understanding the limitations, even of her sort of realized dream. And um, yeah, she, uh, she is in for some rude awakenings, I suppose. I, I like how the um, novel begins with an explanation of the concept of great, the great circle. Um, because I feel like when I think about the globe, it's so hard to visualize the bottom of the Antarctic. And mm -hmm. I feel like there are maps in this book. There will be maps in this book. I only saw the galley. Um, and it's just so hard to 
reorient yeah. one's brain to, to think about that. Totally. You never see the planet from that angle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So a great circle is, is a geometric term, you know, it's the circumference of the circle at its largest point. So as it says in the book, the equator is a great circle and then every line of longitude. So going through the North and South poles. And so I think most people know this, but like the reason a commercial airliner takes that curved trajectory is it's following part of a great circle. It's the shortest distance. Um, But yeah, Antarctica, I mean, I've been to Antarctica twice to two different sides of it. And even having done that, um, it's hard for me to orient it in relation to the bottoms of the continents. I really have to look. And that is one of the maps in the book sort of shows on Marion's around the world flight. You know, she comes from South Africa, crosses East Antarctica uh, to the Ross ice shelf, which will be meaningless to most people with good reason. And one of my sort of big challenges in constructing her flight was that in 1950, um, this sort of flight would have been borderline impossible. Um, mm-hmm. And the big reason would have been Antarctica and there were no permanent bases there at that point. So there, and you would have to refuel this plane twice. Right. So. I used a real historic expedition that was in East Antarctica at that time um, as one one source of fuel, sort of constructing a way that they could bring fuel for her. And then um, she also refuels on the Ross ice shelf where there were bases that had been used and then just sort of get abandoned and they have a bunch of fuel there. And I have been there, um, although the Ross ice shelf (laughs) is a floating platform of ice. It's about the size of France. It's enormous. Um, And so pieces of it are always breaking off and floating away and dissolving and um, melting as it were. And uh, so that has long ago happened to these bases that used to be there. You, the novel reminds me that if you're interested in flying then you have to be interested in in water. (laughs) And it's, I, wouldn't have I wouldn't have drawn uh, as tight a connection between Marion's start in life she and her brother twin brother um, are rescued off of a sinking boat to the later stages in her life when she is flying above water so often yeah um yeah I think it is difficult to wrap our, the way we travel now, modern travel is so fast that it's difficult to wrap your mind around how dominant water is on the planet. Of course, we all learn it in school, we know, but yeah. um, my first sort of, I so in 2012, right before seating arrangements came out, I'd been traveling for like five months and I was writing Astonish Me and I was in Europe and just to be extra, I guess, I took the Queen Mary II across the Atlantic And my kind of reason for doing it was I was really like, how big is an ocean? Like, what is it like to spend days just chugging across empty water? And I mean, the truth is it's, it wasn't, it was illuminating, but it wasn't like, you can't tell you're moving. Of course, you're just at the center of the disc. Um, Nothing changes except the sun goes up and over and you like lose a time zone every day or every other day. Um, and now, uh, partly because of the travel I did in researching this book and also just writing for magazines, I've spent a lot of time at sea. Um, I really enjoy it. I think 
I think it's amazing. And I think it's wild to see animals out there just going about their business, you know, in the mm-hmm. middle of nowhere and some dolphins go by and you're like, what are you doing? But <laughs> <laughs> that's their world. Um, but yeah, I mean, pilots just inevitably also have to deal with the challenges of flying over water and, and lots of those early um pilots in the 20s and 30s when when people are really paying close attention to flight um those were sort of a lot of the big milestones in aviation of course charles Lindbergh flying across the atlantic and if you see the spirit of st louis in the air and space museum it's like a clothes basket you know it's nothing like there's nothing in the world that would make me fly across an ocean in that thing <laughs> yeah absolutely and and so i love you you of course incorporate a lot of real history into this story and we hear about what Amelia Earhart's doing and all of these other um, benchmarks that are being set. How do you incorporate the, the historical into the fiction? Yeah, it was important to me to sort of situate Marion in this real world context. So, um, and I did that in, a few ways, like the section, there are these sections called the incomplete histories where I'd sort of zoom through a long period of, in one case, uh, I do one for, I know you've read the book, but for those who haven't, like I do almost a prehistoric history of Missoula, Montana, which is where Marion grows up and kind of zip through the history, or I do um, something similar with aviation. I had one for Antarctica, but that got cut in the edits, which was probably for the best, but still kind of sad. Um, and then, um, yeah, I wanted to kind of acknowledge the existence of these real pilots. I think, you know, in the years when I was working on this book and people would ask what I was writing about and I would describe it and the universal response was, oh, like Amelia Earhart. And Mm -hmm. it's totally understandable, Mm -hmm. but it's also interesting to me because at the time, again, in the 20s and 30s, there were lots of female pilots who were basically household names who were like really, really famous. And Amelia Earhart's the only one who's persisted, you know, as a Halloween costume and, yeah. uh, you know, his biography day in elementary school type famous person. And it's because she disappeared. Like other people made comparable, had comparable accomplishments and hers were very real, but um, there's this kind of cottage industry around her vanishing that, was kind of one of the sparks for the book because I'm curious about this difference between disappearance and death. Like often they are the same thing functionally, but we process them really differently. And I think it's overwhelmingly likely that Amelia Earhart crashed in the ocean and drowned. Like these islands where she could have been a castaway are so far away from where she was. She had no fuel. That was the whole problem. Um, You know, and then something will surface every couple of years and everyone like passes it around. And then like three weeks later, it'll be debunked, but nobody passes that around. And so it's perpetuated this sort of myth um, and kind of a circus, you know, like I almost, not to be a total curmudgeon, but I find it almost disrespectful that there's this whole like, what really happened? And it's like, eh, she drowned, it sucked, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like she didn't build a coconut house. Um, we, but we have we have stories we want to tell ourselves, which gets us to the the other um, main peg of your story um, about the actress Hadley, who's going to play Marion in a film. And before we get to her doing that, she has a lead role in what was a kind of YA 
fan fiction-y kind of twilight-esque twilight <laughs> yes and and she even goes so far and and this is in her voice not yours um she calls the people the the fans crazy bitches because they just want to believe in the story so badly <laughs> that they're so invested in this in this fiction yeah and and I, that seems like what we're doing. We are doing fan fiction for Amelia Earhart, I guess. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it that way. Um, but yeah, it's true. I think, um, yeah, just to clarify, I actually would never say the word bitch about <laughs> another woman. I hate that word. I wanted but to clarify. I have uh, I've read that section aloud. It was actually the first part of this book I ever read aloud and it was at Breadloaf like years ago. And you could, I could kind of see people in the audience reacting as they said, I was like the crazy bitches just over and over again. Um, but yeah, in writing about Hollywood, I mean, it was sort of a different integration of reality than I did with Marion in that I was sort of purposefully borrowing from Hollywood tropes or real life stories. Like the character sort of has a Kristen Stewart-esque yeah. moment where she's sort of, um, she's been dating her co-star in this, in this series and the fans have sort of invested their relationship with all the fervor they feel about the characters. And it's just this unbearable pressure. And so she sort of publicly cheats on him um, knowing she'll get photographed. And then there's also, you know, there's kind of a Me Too moment, which I think was in the manuscript before the Harvey Weinstein news broke. But the thing is, like, I don't think anyone was surprised about Harvey Weinstein. Like, on the one hand, it was a huge bombshell. And on the other, like, everybody knew, um, you know, and there's a reason, like, casting couch jokes exist and that sort of thing. And um, so I really like to play with the familiar and um, sort of in some ways use the reader's my presumed like their pre-existing knowledge of these things is almost like a boost or a head start. And I just did a conversation with Curtis Sittenfeld and obviously she's written about Laura Bush and Hillary Clinton. And um, the way she put it was that when she does that, she feels like it's the equivalent of when you're talking to a friend. And it's one thing if you're describing someone to them, you can kind of tell them about this person. But if you're talking about someone you both know, it's so much juicier and you have this commonality. And she was like, that's what I feel like I'm doing is having this conversation about someone we both know. And I was like, yes, I'm going to repeat that as though I thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. And then as a reader, it becomes, we become more implicated because, well, I thought to myself, wait, am I the crazy bitch of reading this book? <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> Definitively yes. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> but but I do think it spoke to my expectations for what I wanted from from the story and, and what a story's capabilities really are. Yeah, and one thing I thought about in one thing Hadley says when she's talking about just this really passionate fandom that this franchise inspires and and um she talks about how angry people get when they change one little thing or when the story doesn't give them exactly what they want. In some ways, fan fiction can be an outlet for this. Like you want more of something yeah. from the story. So you write it yourself and make it true. Um, and Hadley thinks that 
our favorite stories are often stories. And I think the word I use in the book is like a little itch to them. Like there's something a little unsatisfying and maybe it's just me, but that's how a lot of my favorite narratives function. There's just something about them that's like sort of annoying or sort of incomplete. And that's kind of what will keep drawing me back to a book, like a book that's perfectly satisfying. I'll read once and be perfectly satisfied, but I don't like come back to be like, wait, but what? (laughs) (laughs) And so tell me a little bit more about the juxtaposition between Hadley and Marion. And, you know, they have such, they have parallel stories um, in that they have, their parents have either died or abandoned them. Tell me what juxtaposing their stories reveals about them. Yeah, so I and I don't outline or plan my books at all. I just I would if I could. Um, it doesn't work for me, so I just have to kind of go and hope for the best. And so I was probably three weeks into writing Great Circle, and it was just kind of writing this like ship launch scene in 1909, and then sat down one day and wrote. The first section I wrote in Hadley's voice was this part where she publicly cheats on her famous boyfriend. And on the surface, that section has literally nothing to do with Marion Graves. There was no connection whatsoever, but I just knew this was the missing piece. And often to get momentum on a project, I need two components of some kind. Um, So the idea that she would play Marion in a biopic, I had pretty early, but then exactly how to connect the stories was probably the biggest challenge of of this book, which had many enormous challenges and was a total nightmare to write. But um, I just, I also didn't want, if I just had it be Marion, I felt like it would have just been this sort of like, you know, cheese ball of like historic fiction, just one texture, one thing kind of. And so I really, and as I was a couple years into drafting, it dawned on me how long it would be. And it used to be longer. This is actually about 25% shorter than when I sold it. Um, And I I just like needed something different that would cut through that, like a different tone, like something a little sharp and sour. And so it's kind of this acidic, you know, accent piece, but it also Hadley's um, point of view also gave me a means to kind of have a different perspective on Marion and kind of one of my preoccupations in the book is how much of a life gets lost when we die you know all our thoughts all our experiences kind of go away with us and so if you're trying to construct someone's life even someone right now who you know you can't there's a limit to how well you can know anyone and certainly then Hadley looking back 70 years at, at this sort of lost figure trying to piece it together so I wanted that to be able to show sort of this game of telephone that happens between vanished aviator and then a movie about her and there's also a novel about her and um, so I wanted them to be sort of bound together but not too tightly and there was sort of a version at one point where it was more like Hadley was like in a library finding papers about Marion and piecing things together and that didn't really work and um yeah it took a long time to really sort of resolve it in a way that that worked for me I I also of course see the parallel that very explicitly Marion and her twin brother Jamie are drawn to the void as you would say um to they want to wrap their heads around things that are too enormous to comprehend. And um, it feels like Hadley's getting there too. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think so. When I was writing it, a friend of mine asked if I had to describe what the book was about in one word, what would it be? And I said, scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's exactly kind of what you're describing. Like what's one life, the scale of one life versus the scale of the planet. What's the scale of one life versus all the lives being lived, you know, the planet versus ge- geological time, all these things. Um, and so I think Hadley and, or sorry, um, Jamie and Marion, you know, as orphans of having had, as having had this brush with death as infants and the shipwreck, um, you know, they're, they're sort of set up to be seekers and their father disappears. And so to them, there's always this horizon with some answer over it, you know, like, where did my father go? Um, uh, what would have happened or what, what would have meant if, you know, they drowned as babies, that sort of thing. And so they're both sort of compelled just to, just to go look for this, answer to an unanswerable question. And that's part of um, what I thought about with Marion's flight too, which she doesn't complete it, but if she had, what would that even mean? You know, the whole nature of a circle is that if you complete it, you're back where you started (laughs) and then what? (laughs) Um, And the horizon just stretches out in front of you all over again. And I I don't want to get too spoilery, but you do just a really immersive um, description of when she is flying um, in the poles, just how, what that experience was like back then, which I think is, is, is a really specific kind of thing. Cause I assume that now there are radars and technology. No, tell me. Well, I mean, yes. And flying in the, this was true in the book as well, that there was, there was a lot more navigational or a lot more navigational aids were present in the Arctic, um, partly because it's just convenient, you know, for getting from parts of North America to Europe, which in the war was necessary. Um, although even then it was a bit sketchy and they would sort of do it in legs. Um, and now, you know, commercial airliners fly over the North Pole all the time, but not over the South Pole. It just doesn't make sense as a route. And part of it's because it's so... Antarctica is so far south, like the continents all end further north than we think, like there are human settlements to the north that are pretty, that are around like 70 degrees north, but 70 degrees south, like Antarctic trips from South America don't even go remotely that far south, like most of them don't even cross the Antarctic Circle, which is 66 degrees south. So it's so far away. Um, There's not much in the way of navigational aids. I think some of the big permanent bases have them like McMurdo station would have them. But I did a story for outside magazine in 2016, I think. And it was about the unit of the air national guard that does all our polar airlift. And it's just like, they have to practice. It's really specialized flying because you get these weird, it's a weird visual effect. So the white snow and often the white sky and you cannot tell, it's incredibly disorienting. Um, and I, I knew I wanted, I needed to go to Antarctica to write the book, um, which I did. Uh, I, wrote, I wrote a modern love about one trip and then another was for a magazine assignment, but you don't go into the Antarctic interior. It's just, sure. you can as a tourist, but it's prohibitively expensive. And so I was like, I really wanna know what it's like to just like be on that ice sheet. And so in the story for outside, I went with this unit um, to Greenland, which is where they go in the summer to practice for the Antarctic summer um, and landed on the, the ice sheet in this plane. And, and it was, you know, it's such a simple visual, just this white disc with this dome of blue sky, but I couldn't have 
the feeling of the, again, the scale of it was just like nothing I could have imagined. And this sort of weird feeling like you're kind of standing on the skin of a water balloon or something, cause you're standing on thousands of feet of ice and just nothing in any direction. Um, it was just, it was astonishing. And uh, yeah, it was something I needed to kind of bring into the book, but this sort of flight even today would be challenging and is rarely done. And then even as you describe um, your experience, then you have to take that extra step of actually translating it and, and writing it down into um, a form that people can understand and read. And that must have been really challenging. Yeah, I mean, it's always with anything heavily researched, there's always the danger of just like including things because you went to the trouble of looking them up. <laughs> and so <laughs> it's sort of like, how does this feel organic? What would actually be important to Marion's experience? How do you make it clear to the reader um, what it would be like and also why it matters? You know, like the, just some of the navigational challenges of the polar regions, um, like how your compass doesn't quite work correctly and how charts don't really, it's difficult to visually represent this place where all these lines of longitude are coming together and everything gets sort of thrown out of proportion. And so that to me sort of also lends kind of a, a mystery or a um, distortion or something to, to these, these regions. It really does. And I felt upon reading it that I was disoriented too. So <laughs> yeah. And also the, I mean, doing the North South flight, you get these wild changes in climate. Like you have these, uh, you know, islands in the South Pacific and then you're in the polar night and then you're in the polar summer. And um, it's, yeah, it's just an epic sort of slice of the whole planet. Amazing. This has been so wonderful. Uh, before you go, will you recommend a few books for us? Sure. Um, I mean, there's so many books I love and I'm always reading sort of a smorgasbord, but I thought I would recommend some of the books that I sort of think are sort of sisters to Great Circle um, in that they're these epics and books that I looked to while I was reading. Um, so I love The Signature of All Things by Elizabeth Gilbert about a 19th century botanist who's also a world traveler. Um, Life After Life by Kate Atkinson, structurally so interesting um, how her main character dies and is reborn and has all these different tries at her life. And at first it felt like a video game and then I thought it was exhilarating. Um, Pachinko for family epic, Tale for the Time Being for sort of using unusual voices. And then one of my big inspirations for Hadley was um, Veronica by Mary Gateskill, which has this sort of intense first person voice and this sort of porousness between past and present that I wanted to use. So all of those books I've read more than once and always go back to. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maris. It was great to great see you. Home. You too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.